Hello, I'd like to thank you all for listening to Journeying Through the Scriptures, a podcast where we walk through God's Word together. Today, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Mark. Today, we are in Mark chapter 7. Now, Mark chapter 7 kind of has several big themes playing through it. One of those themes is the theme of legalism. Legalism plays a major role throughout the whole chapter, but then you're also going to have, with legalism, the theme of faith at the end. So the first two stories deal with legalism, where the last two stories deal with faith. And at first, it might seem that Mark 7 is a bit disjointed. But again, one, Mark did not write in chapters. Uh, Those are put in much later. But also... Mark's stories aren't actually disjointed. As, as disjointed as they might seem, chapter to chapter or within a chapter, they often connect through obvious themes or even subtle themes. And here would be a more subtle theme. So I kind of pin it this way. If we were to put a big picture to Mark chapter 7, it would be that God desires true faith over man-made religious traditions. Now, Let's dig into Mark chapter 7 and see where do I kind of come up with that as the, the main idea of this chapter. Well, through this chapter, we, we see that it begins with the scribes and the Pharisees, and it ends with the story of a Seraphonician woman, a Gentile, as well as another Gentile man who is deaf and mute. So we have religious scribes and Pharisees, and at the end, Gentiles. And let's kind of see how these two these four stories, really, and, and again, the first two are really connected, but we'll see how they interplay with each other. Well, you have to look at the religious class failing to understand true faith and worship, and yet you're going to also have to look at where the Gentiles go to Jesus with that true faith that exceeds even that of the disciples. And so as we dig in, I want that to be in the back of your mind. So the Pharisees and scribes, they gather together in, in verse 1, and I want you to look at this. So now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes, these are the teachers of the law, those who study the word of God, who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, so they're not there to approach Jesus and ask Jesus things about the kingdom of God. They're not there to learn from Jesus. They're not there to hear Jesus teach and even assess what he is teaching. They're there looking for something that they might use to accuse him and have him arrested. And so that's what they're going for. They're they're going for a way to have him arrested. They come to Jesus looking for something wrong. Well, they find something they would deem wrong. So they gather together. They gather the scribes with them. So they, you know, the Pharisees, the te- you know, their teachers, they get their scribes. They're kind of their study guide. They're lo- you know, study guys. They're lawyers, so to speak. And they're like, all right. So we got our bases covered here. Um, and they they go and they go. They notice that some of his disciples, not all, but some, ate with hands that were defiled. Well, what does that mean? They were unwashed. Well, Mark gives us a little more explanation. See, the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they had washed their hands, especially when they're in the marketplace. It, it is holding to the tradition of the elders, and and so that was they wash other things as well. And but they've noticed Jesus' disciples have not done that. 
And in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to, now watch this, the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? So they don't even try to, you know, pretty the picture here. They they don't try to go, all right, well, Jesus, they're, they're not following the, the teachings of the law of Moses. They don't even try to pin it that way. They're just like, they're not following our traditions. Well, Jesus' answer, all be predictable at this point, is going to be, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah, he goes right to the Old Testament, did Isaiah, given that's all he had at that time, right? There's no New Testament. But he goes to Isaiah, one of his favorite prophets to quote. And he says, of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, traditions of men or commandments of men. So he, you know, remember the scribes were there, right? The scribes, they knew the Old Testament. They knew exactly what he was quoting and where he was quoting it from. And Jesus is going, yeah, that's you. Like, I'm, he's now applying this to the scribes and to the Pharisees, probably much to their chagrin. So they approach him with the tradition of men, and Jesus takes him to the Word of God, and he continues his teaching on this, and he says, you leave the commandments of God and hold. And I'm bringing those verbs out. You leave and you hold. So you leave what? The commandments of God, and you hold what? The traditions of men. So he goes, yeah, you're right. We're, we're not following the traditions of the elders, but they're just the traditions of the elders. Not, not to say that all traditions are bad, but he's saying that you're leaving the commandments of God in doing so, and that's a problem. What, what does God desire? He desires true faith over man-made religious traditions. That's what I said at the beginning. And here you have Jesus kind of explaining that as he's saying, you're leaving the commandments of God, true worship. You're worshiping me in vain because you're teaching the commandments of men. Isaiah is actually full of that. In Isaiah 1, I think it's 15, uh, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he says, you know, who ask you to bring these bulls, this trampling of my court. He, he's like, you're bringing me these sacrifices, but you're doing it with an unclean heart. This is like trampling the courts, trampling the altar. I didn't ask this of you. I wanted a heart. I wanted your heart. I didn't want, you know, vain worship. God does not desire vain worship. He does not desire us to show up on Sunday dressed nicely going through the motions and saying, that's worship. No, God desires a true worship from a true faith. And the the Pharisees and the scribes don't have it. And he points this out through Isaiah, and he says, as a result, you're leaving the commandments of God because you are holding to the traditions of man. And that, that is like holding to a sandcastle in a flood instead of holding to a tree that's not going to move. Right again, that analogy breaks down, but you get the point. Holding, leaving the commandments of God is like letting go of the tree that's holding you from the floodwaters and trying to grab onto a sandcastle that's quickly washed away. That's about all the traditions of men will get you in terms of worship. So we have the Pharisees and the scribes, kind of, I mean, speechless at this point. In fact, I don't think they respond because what do you say to that? He's kind of got you. And but Jesus, however. He's not done. He points out their hypocrisy, but he's going to now make it very personal. So here's how he makes it personal. He goes, 
you leave the commandments of God and you cling to, you hold to the traditions of men, this is verse 9, in order to establish your own tradition. He goes, for Moses said, and he's going to make it, here's the personal thing, he's, he's going to attach this, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban. What's korban? That is given to God. That's things they would give to the temple. So the Pharisees had a practice, and Jesus is pointing it out and saying, I know what you're doing, where they would, instead of giving some money to their parents that would help them, so maybe their parents are, well, at this point, they would be more elderly, they, they would need money, food, uh, that sort of thing. And it would have been the obligation of, the son, especially one of a Pharisee who was in a pretty good financial spot to kind of help his parents out as they helped him when he was younger. That would be honoring his parents. Well, what they have decided and figured out is we've got a loophole. Well, they don't really, but they think they do, where they give it to the temple and say, see, I can't give you that money because I gave it to the, kim- the temple. I gave it to God. Well, the thing is, as they give it to the temple, the temple gives it back to them. So it's kind of this infinite loop of it. They're like, can't give it to you. I'm going to give it to the temple so that I can kind of backhandedly receive it again. And so they're not giving it to the temple because this is an act of act of worship or sacrifice. They're doing it to avoid giving it to their parents because they'll benefit from giving it to the temple. And if you're like, man, that's sick. Here's the thing that screams from the text. We do the same thing. We try to find loopholes to, to obey God. We try to we, we do things that we think on the surface look like they are worshipful and obedient to God, and yet at the, we're actually trying to benefit from it, and we're actually perverting the word and commandment of God. And Jesus calls them out on it. He calls us out on it as well. So we can't look at the Pharisees in this story on our high horse and go, boy, those people were bad. No, that's us. We're the Pharisees. We're the scribes in this story. And to be honest, as you'll see in the next section, we're also the disciples because we don't get it. Um, so don't find yourself on the side of Jesus, you know, jumping up and down going, yeah, that's right, Pharisees, because you're the Pharisees in the story. Mark writes this, I think, to confront, and I think the Holy Spirit uses this story to confront the sin in our lives, saying we hold to traditions over the Word of God, and we must decide, we must find, we must pray that God would reveal what those things are in our lives, the tr- those traditions that we are holding above the commandments of God. In, in what ways are we perverting the Word of God for our own benefit? Because we do it. Every believer has done that. We are. It, called, it requires us to constantly be monitoring our hearts. And now Jesus is going to go to the seat of that problem, the heart that I just mentioned, because in verse 14, he calls everybody together. So it's now it was the scribes and Pharisees. Now he calls everybody together. And he says, there's nothing inside a per- there's nothing outside a person, sorry, in verse 15, that by going into him can defile him. But things that come out of the person are what defile him. And he had entered, and when he had entered the house, so he says this, and he enters the house, and the people left. He left the people. But his disciples are there with him. They kind of ask him about this parable, and he says to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not get this? He's going to have to explain it. So just as you were like, well, I'm not the Pharisees. Well, maybe you're the disciples where you don't really get what he's saying. But, and this is what how Jesus explains it. Again, there's a theme of Jesus explaining the parables that he thinks the disciples should understand. 
They don't. He explains it to them. And he said, do, do you not see whatever goes into the person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters into, it does not enter into his heart, but it enters in his stomach and it's expelled. It, it goes out. And Mark kind of concludes, thus he declared all foods clean. And that might be a scribal addition, but uh, that comes out again in Acts. But, he, but that's, and that's not the point here because he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Why? From within, out of the heart of man. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile the person. He's saying those are the things we should be worried about. We often make the mistake of always looking at the outside of things and going, boy, that person doesn't look you know, like somebody that following Jesus. They don't wear the right clothes. They don't drive the right car. They don't say the right things. And he's, and, and while some of those things are important, right? Like if you're saying some bad stuff, I mean, that's a the Bible deals with that. But what I mean is we often look at the outside and Jesus is going, no, no, no. It's the heart of the person that matters because if the heart is sick, what comes out of him will be bad. It's not what he's putting in. It's not the traditions that are going to save him, right? They, they washed their hands. They washed the cups, all that stuff. They, they were good at you know that, those kind of ceremonial washings that he's going to see here. The problem is they think by doing that, they're not defiling themselves, but they're already defiled. And see, the, the bigger truth is that we as, as Christians and as humans in general, we're defiled by sin, not from things that we put into our body, but things that are already within us. Sin is already within us, and it's defiling us from the inside out, and we need Jesus to cleanse us. Only he can cleanse us. No ceremonial washing, no tradition will do that. Only Christ. And so I want to bring that out as we read this. Those are things that as you read this passage should be welling up with inside you going, Jesus, cleanse me that I'm not defiled of heart. I don't want to be defiled of heart. I don't want these evil things to go from within to without, meaning they're going to start within, but they're going to come out. I I want you to cleanse me, and it has to be from the very heart. Cleansing the outside of things does not work. Changing your behavior alone does not work. Christ must change your heart so that your your behaviors will change because your heart is clean. We need a new heart. Now, we're going to go into the next two stories, and I want you to see how these two are actually connected again because we're going to see an example of true faith. And this story actually gets a lot of uh, attention for various reasons I'll point out. But he, he goes from there, and he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are Gentile areas. And he entered into the house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately everybody there recognized him. And a woman whose little daughter had been who had an unclean spirit, heard of him. They had heard the stories, by the way, perhaps, from because he's near the Decapolis. I'm going to point this out. It's possible, maybe, the man in chapter 5, who had the demons, the thousands of demons, that he healed, and he said, hey, go tell everybody. And he went around the Decapolis proclaiming who, what Jesus had done for him. Perhaps she heard. Now, we don't know that, it's, but maybe because she knows, hey, Jesus is the guy that can help. And she comes to him, and now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
is begging. She falls at his feet. I want you to, to notice the humble posture that, that she comes to Jesus with. She doesn't approach him arrogantly. The scribes and the Pharisees approach, and they're watching, trying to find something wrong. She comes, and she falls at his feet. Humility, understanding he is the king. She understands he's, he's not someone, he's not an equal, he's not an under. He's someone that we, we fall down at his feet, and, we, and she begs him to heal her daughter. And Jesus said to her something that is very shocking and it should get our attention and it should make us scratch our heads a little bit because it just seems off and it seems almost, you know, unworthy of something Jesus would say. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He calls her a dog. And at first we're kind of going, Jesus, whoa, (laughs) like you called this woman a dog. That's pretty harsh. Well, there's several things, and this is, I, I did a series where I had students ask me questions, and one of those questions were, why, did, why was Jesus so mean to this woman? And so we took a whole lesson, and we looked at this story. And so what I'm trying to do in like the next three to four minutes, I taught in like 30 minutes to an hour. So there's a lot of material here. But essentially, Jesus actually isn't calling her a dog. He's giving a parable. And she actually continues that parable, and the word dog there would mean pet or puppy. So it's not that he was like calling her a street dog, right? But more of a like a puppy, a family dog. But it's within a parable where the, the children would be Israel. And he's saying, I, I came for them first. And this is not uncommon language for the Bible. Paul will say, you know, for I am unashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to save first to the Jew, then to the Greek. And he says that throughout, and he says it in Ephesians as well. So this is a thought we see in Paul's writing. I don't think it was an original thought. He got it from Jesus, right? Uh, big surprise. So he, that, that's kind of what he's saying. But the woman's answer is significant. Watch the faith. Watch the true faith. But she answered him, he, and she kind of presses his parable on and says, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I want to point out one, he healed the, the woman's daughter from a distance. He didn't need to go. He didn't need to hit, put her, his hand on, her, on the kid. He just said, no, demon's gone. From a distance, Jesus has authority over demons, right? He doesn't have to be in their presence. He can do it from long distance, long, a long-distance exorcism, if you will. But, but watch what she's saying, and it's beautiful. He says, you know, my my dealings with the people of Israel is, is like the bread. And she says, I, I don't need the bread. I just need the crumbs. If you could just give me a crumb, Jesus, that, that's sufficient for me. And, and think back to what just happened where the religious leaders, the ones that in this parable would be the children that he came for first, would be the ones that are supposed to be eating the bread, and they were the ones who were challenging Jesus. They were the ones who showed no evidence of true worship to Jesus. And yet here's the Gentile woman who says, a crumb is enough for me. That's all I need. And, and that's such faith that Jesus says, hey, you, because of your statement, your, your kid is healed. Because he sees true faith. And it's, it's interesting when you compare that to the faith of the disciples who see Jesus do all these miracles. And she's probably simply only heard of it. 
and yet she it's enough. Just give me a crumb. And yet they just a few chapters later will be confused when Jesus starts talking about the bread of the bread of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh, man, we forgot to bring bread on the boat, and now he's mad at us, and he's going, no, first of all, I fed 5,000, and then he, I fed 4,000, and you're confused about bread. Like, it's not about the bread. And and so they're, why is your faith still lacking? And he challenges their faith again, and he's done that several times, and yet this Gentile woman approaches Jesus with such faith that she's like, I just need a crumb, because I know that even with that crumb, it's enough. That is faith. That it, there's a beauty in that. So if you want to be like somebody in these in this chapter, be the Seraphonician woman who approaches Jesus and says, I don't need the bread. I just need a crumb because a crumb is enough. And, and displays true faith. Not man-made tradition, but true faith. And then Jesus returns to the region of Tyre, which, by the way, is about 120 miles from the city, and so quite a journey to the Sea of Galilee in the region known as the Decapolis. Again, that would be the where the guy he had healed from the demon has been wandering around talking and telling people about him. And they brought to him a man, probably these are people who probably have heard what Jesus did for the, the demoniac. And so they bring to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. Now I want to notice, I want you to notice verse 26, and she begged him. And I want you to notice verse 32, and they begged him. There's a begging because they know Jesus is the one who can do these things, and they beg Jesus to do it, because they know in faith he's the one that can. And they begged him to lay his hands on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. So he's not in front of the crowd when he does this, but I think the guy's friends that had brought him are there, because he's they, so just watch. And he put his finger, his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven, he sighed and said, and it's hard to pronounce this, but, Ephanatha, that is, be opened. And the and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them, I think that would be the people that were with Jesus, his, the guy's friends who saw this, to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. In verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well, even he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I know we're running out of time, but I want to point out some beautiful, beautiful connections. There, no, we don't condone the the rebelliousness or the disobedience here, where Jesus says, "Don't tell anybody," and they tell. You don't want to condone that, but I do want to point out they're excited because Jesus has done something that they find amazing and astounding, and they can't wait to tell people. Um, I can understand their excitement, and people are astonished beyond measure. And I want you to. Here's the connection. Because he has done all things well. That connects back to Genesis. Where he has made all things good. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Connects back to Isaiah. Where it talks about the deaf may hear, the mute may speak, the lame may leap. And he, he kind of, there's a passage in Isaiah where that's what he's referring to. And I think Mark is kind of echoing back to that. that he and the, and the one that does that is the Messiah. And it's like he's saying Jesus is the Messiah. Having true faith in Jesus is much more beautiful than any man-made tradition because man-made tradition is worshiping God in vain. It will not save you. So I want to close with this. You have two Gentiles exhibiting great faith. First a woman, 
than a, a mutant deaf man. Both display you know, a remarkable faith in Jesus, and Jesus heals and cares for these Gentiles. And I think Mark is saying, look at their faith. That's the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for your man-made religion. He's not looking for, you know, look at me. I, I do all these traditions. He's looking for true faith. So how's your faith today? Is it a true faith or is it a faith that simply relies on traditions and outward things? I want you to pray on that and think about that. And I want you to join me next time for Journeying Through the Bible podcast, Mark chapter 8. I hope to see you there.